aboard. Hey, what's up, everybody? You're listening to Cannabis Karaoke, where we ask you to grab the mic and tell your story. Get inside info from today's most interesting cannabis pioneers, and from the first note to the end of the song, listen up as you get to hear the stories of success on Cannabis Karaoke. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Karaoke. I'm your host, Danny Keith, but after dozens of these things during this COVID period, I'm sure you know who I am now. But uh, this is a podcast that's dedicated to the cannabis industry. We talk to thought leaders. We talk to mover shakers. We talk to people that are moving the needle in the space. And this next guest that we're about to introduce is right up that alley. Uh, we're going to be talking with Mary Carrion. She's the associate editor of Mary Jane, and I'm sure everybody knows who Mary Jane is, but... I really want to know from her today, how does she use her journalism within cannabis and psychedelics to tell a story and to talk to people that are in that space? Welcome to the show, Mary, and thank you for taking time right now. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No, you're I, like I said, man, we're really busy right now. And you're kind of a you're one of the premier talking heads in the space when you when it comes to the journalism component. Tell us a little bit about uh the angle, Mary Jane's a little, would, is it fair to say edgy, a little edgy? Like yeah. you're okay with being a little bit on the fringe of stuff. How do you pick yes. your topics and, and kind of what interests you in the space as a journalist? Well, there, the way that cannabis works, I feel like is you're telling the best stories. If you're using cannabis or any other drug or medicine or uh, topic as a lens of which to tell other stories. So to tell more human stories as to what's happening in terms of mental health, what's happening in terms of medicine, what's happening in terms of, you know, laws and society and telling those stories through the lens of cannabis or, you know, psychedelics or other types of medicines or drugs or, you know, the list goes on. But um, yeah, using it as a lens tends to really broaden the scope and provide tangible uh workable concepts for people that really hit home often and they realize that you know through through storytelling this way it allows uh, people to sort of realize how infiltrated into society these things actually are so i try to aim for those things and i try to tell you know deeper stories that are a little bit more than just getting stoned because ultimately it is so much more than that so, so yeah. yeah and when did so when you for how long have you been with mary jane just for the record Actually, I just had my full first year wow. on April 1st. So seven, so. Year, seven years, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cannabis yes, space. I, <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, I have some now new gray hairs to prove it. Oh, so. my goodness. <laughs> and when did when did you guys, uh, you know, when you guys take, or when you specifically take on an article, what's your time frame to kind of do your research? I mean, I don't, in reading some of your stuff, it's, you're more, I feel when I'm reading, it's more uh, of a well-rounded approach versus like, you know, some people write to create conflict. Some people write to expose something. Some people yeah. write to like pontificate, but you kind of go in on this interesting kind of journalistic approach of like telling the whole story. When you're interviewing somebody, like give us a, an interview that was like really impactful for you as much as you feel like it was for your readers. Oh man. Um, I, so, uh, about, about like six months ago, almost like eight months ago now, I would say I interviewed, uh, two authors of a book, um, and the author's names are Virginia Hayes and Dr. Mandrake, and they wrote the book on how to grow psilocybin mushrooms. 
And it's a very popular book. You can find it on Amazon. I'm actually butchering the name of the book right now. But basically, they're going to be coming out with a cookbook on how to cook psilocybin mushroom uh you know, like edibles basically. And you can, they have recipes for gummy worms and lollipops and all kinds of other, you know, interesting, uh, you know, interesting baking goods that you can just ingest and enjoy and experience a cool, uh, you know, way to ingest psilocybin. And, um, that interview was extremely impactful because what I learned was that there are, there, there are so many ways that we're going to learn about consuming these medicines in the future, like in the very, very near future. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind to Pluto, basically, because, well, that's what mushrooms do. But um, <laughs> they, <laughs> um, you know, just there's so much science behind it. And, uh, you know, working with psilocybin in that way and ex- learning how to extract it seems like such a complicated thing but it's actually something you can do in your own kitchen uh and that's what i learned and i think that that interview was extremely profound for um you know, for our readers too and providing a well-rounded scope allows it allows people to sort of you know if you don't know anything about it you can learn a little bit about it or you can jump in and kind of leave the story with more knowledge well, and it's, it's interesting times because we are in a period of undereducated people where, um, you know, and at the same time, like we were talking offline before we jumped on, you know, people are also uh, head one off headlines. Right. We're, so I've, I'm right. a firm believer that we haven't evolved far enough to have social media conversations intelligently. It has to be divisive and, you know, argumentative and uh, political and my team, your team. And so in this era of all that noise, you know, of all the noise before we had social media, you know, print mags and podcasts or whatever, you know, however people were getting their information was a little less noisy. Now it's so noisy. Um, You know, being someone that writes, well, Mary Jane, let's be I'm going to make a statement if you can argue with that if you, okay. don't, if you don't like it started as a cannabis based news outlet right correct and mm-hmm. so it's funny as I watch you know I've been in cannabis you know in one way or another my whole life um, whether it was selling weed to people or buying weed from people or moving pounds or whatever you know I've been and I've watched and you know, when cannabis went legal in, well, went recreational in California, which right. I still think mm-hmm. is a, was a big mistake the way we did it. But agreed, agreed. Because 215, we had way more of an open market, less of an illicit market. People were complying. I don't disagree with right. like some of the regs and some of the taxation. I, I disagree with how the state put it out and how not all counties have to participate because it just creates these deserts. And these, I mean, yeah, ahead. you're talking about segregation online. Talk about creating segregation in real life. That's right. exactly what these laws did so and it's crazy that makes it complicated but yeah but then right so you got you got so i just want to i'm going to set the table you got cannabis you got cbd whether it's thc driven or hemp driven let's just leave it as a category and then you got mm-hmm. mushrooms right and so cannabis right. cannabis just gets the living shit kicked out of it every single turn right and it's yeah. we just basically legalized mushrooms in santa cruz not but maybe two months ago and it was like really not a big deal. It was like, eh, mushrooms are legal now. You're like, what the hell? And so it's like, how long, you know, we're already seeing players in the space 
pivot from THC driven businesses to CBD driven businesses. Like I know a couple dispensary chains that said we're over it too much work, too much regulation, too much taxation, too much instability. We're going to pivot. We're going to do all CBD. We're going to go wellness. We're going to go hemp. It's easier regulated. So, you know, we had cannabis that got put in a headlock. Then you got CBD that was kind of like, okay, it can go anywhere. No big deal. And then you got mushrooms, which is just seems to be, which to me, if you would have told me five years ago, that's that, that this is how we were going to be treating psychedelics. Right. I would have been like liar. That's not like happening. You're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now yeah. I got normal people going, Hey man, uh, do you have any mushrooms? <laughs> you know where I can score some mushrooms? Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and now we have this like interesting black market, which mushrooms, if done, if you know what you're doing, can be done almost easier than growing weed. And right. it has yeah. somewhat of a more profound effect on people, I feel, right. especially right. if controlled in dosing. And so of course. even though we are technically on cannabis karaoke and we're talking, we're supposed to be pivoting and talking about the cannabis space. It is an interesting muscle that's being flexed in the psychedelic realm because I happen to have a friend who lives in Hawaii who is raising a lot of money around his uh, psilocybin brand. And it's actually getting like big people that are, it's just, it's just strange to me. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not really making any sense right now. I'm just perplexed, you know? No, I agree. I mean, that's definitely one of the that's definitely one of the main topics that like people who are who look and study kind of the psychedelic space. That's one of the main things that is popping out and you can't even avoid noticing it basically is the issue of psychedelics are moving at a rapid rate at a very, very fast rate. And we're, it's pretty much moving in a lot of ways. It can be argued that it's moving ahead of cannabis in that way, in the terms of how the government's reacting to it. And the fact that people are now using it for medicine, like it's breakthrough therapy medicine and we're studying it and we're researching it and we're doing clinical trials when we've barely even done a clinical trial for cannabis you know, so right. that's, that's weird. That's very odd. And, um, a lot of people aren't okay with it, which obviously it's understandable. That's totally fine not to be okay with it because in a lot of ways it's very unfair. Um, and why does cannabis have this stigma when psychedelics don't, why is cannabis being looked at as something that could cause psychosis when mushrooms aren't? I'm not saying that mushrooms, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about them, but you know, why, like, it's just interesting that, you know, cannabis is being looked at in a still a very stigmatized way. And we're seeing that still. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, if you go back and you, you're, you being the journalist, I'm going to defer to you on this comment, but you know, some say that one of the reasons why we went from, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's, uh, it's, it's about the brain where the brain, where we went bicameral, we went from being bicameral to being metaf- metaphorical, if you will, with our with our ability to have thoughts. There's some studies that say I, I can't remember the name of the book right now offhand, but that when in the early days when people thought they were being spoken to by the gods or or whatever, that it was literally the evolution of the bicameral brain becoming more complex and having thoughts and being able mm. to, and they and some attribute that to mushrooms that that possibly as we were wandering nomadically around this planet, chasing the herds, if you will, that, that we were ingesting 
mushrooms that were growing off the back of some of the dung of these animals that were running around. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I know that in my, you know, 50 times around the planet now at this point that I have done a fair share of things in my life and the psychedelics are probably, I, we, I feel like when you're participating in, in taking that and look, there's people that go overboard with it. I like the microdose. I'm I'm more of a microdoser, but that it really does kind of put a different set of optics on you and how you look at life, how you contemplate things. Um, I don't want to get all, you know, holistic, but like, Mm. it just feels, it feels like your brain's a little bit more, like you're using more of your brain and you have the the capability to have a broader spectrum of consideration. Um, and and you're not so narrow-minded. Whereas like, I'd say a good majority of people, you know, are doing the cocaine alcohol thing. Right. And that does not really cause you to, that causes your brain to die. That doesn't necessarily give you a brain growth opportunity. Yeah, uh, I agree. 100%. Also, uh, one way to kind of look at it, and I'm not sure if there are any studies necessarily proving this or not, but in terms of like just experiencing empathy, you know, cocaine and alcohol tend to kind of dull that, whereas uh, psychedelics and cannabis included enhance that and really make even people who tend to not think that they're very empathetic become extremely empathetic in these moments, in moments of, you know, having a mystical experience or, you know, just a, a psychedelic experience in general, even on the very low doses, the uh, empathy usually is very heightened, which can lead to new perspectives, which can lead to emotional intelligence, which actually is the most important intelligence when you're working with people, communicating with people, interacting with people, trying to make relationships work and pretty much doing everything that we do in life. So yeah, it, it definitely, I agree with you that it opens our eyes in a way that otherwise, you know, would remain shut and, um, helps expand perspective and open to new perspective, which really, once you have those experiences, it changes everything. It's like traveling. Could you, I was thinking of something funny while you were saying all that. It's, (laughs) I could see these like new (laughs) business retreats, 2022, right. Where, where the entire staff comes out and, you know, cause I've worked for, I've consulted, I've done a lot of stuff. I've gone to these emotional training seminars for business and, you know, you're right. Emotional, um, what was the word you used? Emotional, emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence yeah. is, is really a vital component of being a leader, uh, in order Absolutely. to, in order to lead people, you have to be able to empathetically put your, you know, just consider what those people are seeing, you know, have, you know, having been a CEO of numerous companies, I tend to not call my people employees. I tend to call them my coworkers. Some, yeah. somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to, you know, either be the successor or the person that, you know, is the one that deals with the shit into the stick, if you will. And so, um, maybe we'll see these seminars taking place where people will come together and instead of listening to somebody blow hard, cause you can't just turn on that <laughs> emotional intelligence switch. It's true. No, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Also, I think that if business owners em- like employed emotional intelligence and employed that skill, it would change the face of business. Because right now, empathy and business, they, those two things kind of don't go hand in hand. They don't work. They're not, they're, they don't work symbiotically, even though they could, they could work symbiotically. Just the way that things were before COVID, 
uh, it wasn't working, you know, that like emo- high, uh, empathy and emotions don't work in a highly corporate environment, but maybe we'll see that change. You know, you, you kind of gave us a good pivot point with COVID and, you know, prior to this happening and I'm not a doomsdayer. I mean, I, I make sure that my family is prepared we have supplies. Like when, when this whole thing hit the fan, you know, I was, I go down to uh, LA probably every other week. Uh, I'm down there and I'm, you know, I live up in the Bay area. So I, I work with the Chong family. I'm just down in that area quite a bit because that's where a lot of the, I mean, in cannabis, it's where two thirds of the dispensaries exist. And so that's, and that's my primary business is working with enlightened and cannabis club TV to put menus and TVs into dispensaries. But when the TSA agent, you know, came like out of San Jose, came down with COVID three of them, and then 42 of them got quarantined. I was literally leaving on a plane the next day. And I looked at my wife who, one of the reasons I'm in cannabis was because she survived a brain tumor. And and it's like, you know what? I just don't think I'm going to put my family at risk. And this was like, I've been quarantined for three weeks now. I've not gone outside, but to go with my wife to the grocery store because she's Asian and there's this Asian hate thing going on. And then, and then also not necessarily in Santa Cruz, but I don't want to take a chance. And, and then I went surfing one time, which I shouldn't have, but I couldn't help myself. And so it's, I, I feel like pre COVID I was constantly looking around going, you know, (laughs) the, the life of monopoly, when you play monopoly, somebody's a winner and then everybody else is a loser. And you have to start the game over and, and we're so lopsided on, on how we, on our wealth, wealth inequalities or how we run things. And if you want to coin it corporate, I think it's culture driven. I think you can be a successful corporate large company with the right culture, but we've kind of lost sight of that. We've kind of lost sight of, you know, human touch, if you will. And I don't want to be, I'm not, I'm not trying to be groovy, but I was wondering, I'm like, okay, when's, when's this thing going to run off the rails? You know, what, what is going to yeah. cause it to run off the rails? Because literally, I mean, whether you love or hate 45, the world's an interesting place right now, just not in America, but everywhere. And here we are on the back of this virus. That's like kind of as an invisible enemy enemy that we don't know how it really transmits, how you get it. All we know is if we stay with the same people that we're always with and we stay inside and we don't you know, interact with anybody, hopefully we won't die. Yeah. It won't permeate the walls. (laughs) And and meantime, you know, 6 million people are flying, filing for unemployment and they're not sure how you're going to pay your mortgages. They're trying to do stimulus checks. Like what's I'm curious. I don't expect you to answer this, but I kind of want your opinion. It's like, how are we going to come out of this? Like everyone seems to think, you know, around here anyways, May 5th, you know, middle of May, we're going to be going back to, but it's like, is the virus just going to comply and go away? Like uh, I, I could see us living in a world of face masks and gloves for the next year, possibly or longer. I mean, there's no guarantee that even if they come up with a vaccine that, that the world hasn't decided to purge itself. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, you know, that answer, or there is no answer yet. We have no idea. I mean, we don't even know how it's transmitted. So that leaves a ton of question marks in terms of like, that's the puzzle piece we would need to create a more, uh, you know, a working hypothesis that's closer to correct. Um, and I think that if you look based on patterns of previous pandemics, you'll see that, you know, particularly the one with the most parallels that COVID has is with the Spanish flu. 
that, you know, ended up kind of going away during the summer. Everybody was like, oh, things are great. And then it came back and it decimated the population. Not saying that that's, you know, the decimation is going to happen again, but, you know, we might see a comeback of this come fall, come flu season again. And that's definitely scary. And I, I don't know. I don't really think that the rest of 2020 is going to be completely COVID free. I think that's going or ever going to be COVID free. I think it's going to kind of color most of 2020, unfortunately. Um, but I do think that because something like this has broken, at, like it's really just shining the light on all the fractures in the system. I think that it's creating space for a new way of doing things, including running businesses, including changing the way corporate structures work, where maybe the greed of capital of late capitalism, you know, won't be the main principle of functioning companies in society or in the United States. And really, truly, it sucks right now, but we need that. We can't go on the way things are right now. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. It hasn't been working. It's a very broken system or it was a very broken system. And hopefully we can use this time to figure out how we're going to move forward, you know? No, absolutely. I think you, you made some pretty poignant uh, comments with the fact that it, we, we have been fractured for quite some time. I mean, people like us kind of avoid it because we do our own thing. But there's so many right. people that are running the treadmill. Like, you know, I live in Santa yeah. Cruz. We're 45 minutes from Silicon Valley. We have a population in this county of about 240,000-ish people. And I'll do some quick math for you. It's probably about 60,000 working adults, if you will. You know, uh -huh. you, got, you got elderly, you got, you got kids, you got whatever. 30,000 people a day are driving over the hill to go work in Silicon Valley um, that aren't doing that now, that are finding out now that that – a lot of their work can be done remotely. Um, mm -hmm. the, the problem is, the real problem is, is can people be responsible and still be productive? Because us self-starters, us people that, that work for ourselves or have the ability to control our own destiny, if you will, on business, have an acumen of like, okay, no one has to tell me to get up and do anything. I take care of that myself. But most people have been conditioned to show up to work at nine o'clock, I've worked, right. I've worked in two jobs outside of not working for myself. One of them was at the food bank and one of them was in the NBA. And both of them are guilty of what I call, you know, Velcro in the seat. They just want to see you in your chair. And right. I'm, I'm a performance guy. So if it takes me a hundred hours to do something or it takes me two hours to do something, I measure myself on my, my output, not on how much time I take to do those things. We have to get away from literally enslaving people with time. Like the fact that we give 160 hours out of our month to an employer for in trade for money that barely covers our bills doesn't leave us open to creativity. It actually creates a lot of hostility. I'm, I'm really concerned, you know, we're two, well, let's just say 15 days into this uh, you know, labeled quarantine and, and we're probably going to be here until at least middle of May. I can't see us the yeah. way it's trending coming out sooner, but you have a lot of people that just don't care. And so it's, it's one of those things as I guess where I'm going with this as a journalist, like how are you observing these things and how are you looking for what's going to be next in the spaces that you cover? Like how is, how is COVID affecting the stuff you do? And, 
the cannabis business as you see it? And how is COVID, you know, it could be good or bad. It doesn't always have to be yeah. bad. People always go to the bad part. But I, I think, you know, out of the last yeah. downturn we had, we had some amazing businesses get created. I think that some of the best businesses, some of the best opportunities in the world come out of the, the times of the heaviest duress. Absolutely. I, you know, there, I feel like there are so many answers to that question. I feel like, you know, one thing that's definitely happening is, well, one thing that, you know, maybe people aren't just going to stop going to work randomly at from nine to five, you know, all, I think those jobs will probably always exist still because, you know, those types of businesses will come back and continue to exist in society for those who want them. And for those who, you know, it's in their DNA to get up at nine, or, you know, to get up at 6am, sure. be at work by nine and get you know, the hell away five. from the kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, totally. Um, that said, I think that a lot of businesses are now going to make a switch to, you know, maybe not having, uh, maybe not having offices the way that they used to and more co-working spaces, which would would change a lot of how things work. You know, a lot of uh, it would impact cannabis. It would impact the way uh, a lot of these business firms run and, you know, people who don't touch the plant that it will change all of that. And um, I am definitely seeing a shift in there's just a lot of themes and trends that are coming out right now that I think are going to be sort of long term, long term trends and long term things like, for instance, a very uh, one that's coming to the top of my head right now is the idea that cannabis is an essential business. Um, I know you said you were talking about that yesterday with Ophelia Chong. Shout out to Ophelia. She's my gal. Um, I love her. She's wonderful. She is very, Her very... and Keiko. Keiko put oh. us together. <laughs> yeah, K oh, yeah. Keiko is the best. Yes. Keiko, shout out to Keiko, too. <laughs> Two women um, doing amazing things in the space, both in cannabis and psychedelics. Yeah, and I mean, just they're educators. Thought from, leaders, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't even know what I was saying. Sorry, but, I took you uh, off course. That's what, <laughs> I just, you were talking yeah, about um, the essential need for cannabis and kind of how right, it's, you right. know, now I'll just add a quick little thumbtack for you to kind of kick off on. It's all controlled by county by city. And so like San Jose and Santa Cruz are like, oh, medicinal only now. It's like, so go ahead. Go, just go on what you were going to say. I just wanted to add yeah. that. Yeah. Well, so, you know, in like, yes, it is definitely city by city in terms of, you know, whether recreational or, you know, adult use and medical cannabis are deemed essential or which one is and which one isn't. But the concept in general of cannabis being seen as an essential business is really a game changer. And I think that that's going to play a huge role in, you know, legalization on a federal level uh, or rescheduling or, you know, however, however that ends up looking. Uh, I think that I think that's one of the major themes that we're seeing. We're also now seeing a lot of data in terms of like how cannabis is being used. We've always kind of had data on that, you know, anxiety, depression, um, you know, things like that, uh, obviously physical illnesses, uh, chronic illnesses, but we're seeing more in like right now, especially we're seeing a lot of data come out around cannabis and mental health. Whereas, you know, we've seen a ton of stuff on psychedelics, mushrooms, MDMA, uh, and how those substances impact mental health. But now we're starting to see data on how people are using it to cope with loneliness, how people are using it to even cope with boredom. And we don't think of boredom as 
a mental illness, but you know, when you're in isolation and you are being like in a overdosed state of boredom, cannabis can be really helpful for that. So I think that that's very interesting and what we'll see going forward. And as when, you know, I agree with you. I think, you know, my path to cannabis has always been to get high. You know, that was from the jump, like, because it was just something, you know, I was a punk rock kid and like smoking weed was what we did, you know, and like stealing mm-hmm. my dad's weed and selling it and, you know, being part of that counterculture <laughs> kind of society, you know, that I'm a rebel was basically kind of what we were born out of with that space. And as new people are coming on, you know, it kind of goes hand in glove with my surfing. I've been surfing since I was like 14 or 15 years old. And to me, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's, you know, same right. with cannabis. Cannabis is a lifestyle for me. It's a holistic mm-hmm. of component of my life. It's not just the plant. It's my plant and it's, I protect it and I'm very fond of it and I'm very inquisitive of it. As these new people are coming on, what a great benefit to them to have. And I even think the state didn't realize when, I think when everybody was talking about legalization, because let's face it, at Prop 215, there was, it was mainly just flour. There was some vaping right. going on. It was the categories right. hadn't exploded, but once we went right. recreational, I mean, like I now take tinctures, I take pro right. tabs, I smoke, yeah. I smoke hash, I smoke flour, I vape. I mean, I, I ingest cannabis through like over a half a dozen different ways. How is that? How is that? How are those vehicles influencing psychedelics and, and how are people taking a page out of cannabis of what not to do and what to do to kind of move forward? Oh, man, that's such a beefy question. Um, I'm going to break it down. So I feel or no, I know I know that what we can what we can take from cannabis is that. With the onset of legalization or with yeah legalization here in California, we saw an influx and a heightened use of technology around cannabis. So the same thing, essentially, the more we move forward with psychedelics, that's also going to happen in terms of how you can ingest them, the dosaging and overall technology around consumption of psychedelics. That's we're going to see a mirror situation happen in terms of that. That said, it's a huge worry, a big, huge worry in the space of psychedelics to not repeat a lot of what cannabis has done. And it's a little bit scary because, you know, we tend to repeat, history tends to repeat itself. And, you know, we're watching one Schedule One illicit substance, cannabis, rise out of the underground, a very stigmatized world. And, you know, it has, and, and we, it has its issues and we kind of didn't do it properly. And it's a little bit scary to, to think about, you know, what that's going to look like once it becomes federally legal. There are many of the same concerns that apply to the world of psychedelics as well in terms of taxing, in terms of making huge profit, in terms of, you know, big pharma getting involved, in terms of making it easier, easy or easier for big pharma to get involved and big money to get involved, because ultimately it's going to create a capitalistic structure around these substances. And I mean, ultimately, psychedelics are the antithesis of capitalism. So it kind of makes it a little, uh, I don't know, kind of nauseating to think about it being that way. But because we're still so early on in the psychedelic movement, 
it can change. It doesn't have to be that way, but we have to figure out a structure that's going, that's going to work. And that isn't going to, you know, make cannabis a very, or make, I'm sorry, make psychedelics a very, um, you know, money oriented thing. It is a truly spiritual, you know, you look at the group of people that, you know, it's always been hippy dippy kind of the perception of, you know, uh, cannabis and psychedelics. And, and you know, what's funny is that not a lot of people, everybody will talk about their weed. Everybody will share their weed and people will share their psychedelics, but it's like, it's like almost a tighter knit group. I feel like, right. You know, because you, you got, <laughs> I've seen some people have some bad experiences. And so you got to make sure the people you're around are prepared. You, you almost have to be in a, the proper mental state actually to participate yes. in psychedelics. Cause if you're not, Absolutely. It could be really bad for you. Absolutely. Yes. Mental, mental space and physical space even. Yes. Like your surroundings, that's everything too. And, and I think more than anything in that particular area, it's like, know your limits, you know, make sure that you're not, you know, taking a whole cap if you're not capable of managing <laughs> right. a whole cap. It's okay to like, I, I know a lot of people that'll grind it up and, and microdose it. Um, Tim Blake's favorite way to do mushrooms is, you know, to grind it up and have it in little capsules so that you know how many you're, you're actually doing. Right. Yeah. So when we look at the, the, the struggle that cannabis is going through and you mentioned federal legalization, it kind of makes me cringe when I hear that. I I get into arguments with people all the time. I'm like, I don't want it to be federally legalized. The only thing I want more if we can't roll back 64 or augment it to where it's not such a clusterfuck mm-hmm. is to like, just give us banking, man. Just like, I know, let us be able to bank so that we're not at risk. You know, we've been very fortunate as a industry that we haven't seen more. And, and there's been a lot of them where people are getting robbed or they're getting broken into, or they're getting killed. There's, you know, there's that episode where those two, Bud tenders were killed in downtown LA, uh, you know? Yeah. Um, yes. And those guys were, I mean, I knew both of those guys, you know, from just traipsing around, not like they were my buddies, but I knew of them and you know, it's sad and a lot, not that Horrible. that, not that that episode was directly tied to the banking situation, but so many people, you know, are, I remember when we were first doing the Tommy Chong cannabis brand and we had our distributor this is probably 2017 and we had to go pay the first round of taxes and we walked in well the my the distributor walked in i didn't walk in they walked in with like i think a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash and the state of california is like oh we can't process this you know so it's like who in the right mind make goes yeah you can have an industry yeah you can do all this stuff oh by the way you got a test to the 10th you've got to have the right packaging you got to have all these things oh but by the way you can't bank <laughs> you can't put money into a bank safely you can't transact normally you know um it adds to the cost of the transaction for the consumer if they don't walk in with cash now they got to go use an atm that they're going to get dinged three to five bucks for taking out the money to buy the the cannabis that they're now going to be taxed to the 10th on so you know when when we hear this whole you know, I hear people talking about wanting to federally legalize, dude, they could actually do it in a way where it completely just flips the cart if they go schedule two. Like if they decide right. to just make weed schedule two, bye bye industry, no more. You know, now now will that really, really happen? I doubt it. I think we have too much weight and too much teeth now, but 
it could, I mean, you got Biden who's out there touting like it should be a Schedule 2 drug, and that scares the living shit out of me. He probably doesn't even know truly what Schedule 2 is. He's probably meaning just to like reschedule to a better position, but I mean, I mean, he should know what Schedule 2 is. But the, the whole war on drugs you know? needs to be abandoned and a different approach needs to take place. For 50 years, Agreed. we've been attacking the 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 drug scenario and all it does is make criminal activity more profitable you know uh, i'm not saying we should be selling meth and heroin but for god's sakes take the equation out of it you know the minute we did the one good upside thing that we did initially when when 64 hit and we had that little honeymoon period where everybody was super happy the okay. the cartels were that that took a huge chunk of financing out of their pockets initially which what people don't understand is on the illegal drug trade, and I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but the illegal drug trade pretty much funds human trafficking, gun running, larger crimes, even white collar crimes, because it's the easiest way for them to get like residual income. If you've got all these people that are strung out on meth or heroin or other drugs, you know, that they're buying on the street level, those are the people that are going out and breaking into people's houses, stealing their garden rakes and doing debaucherous stuff just so they can get their fix. But that money on those $10 transactions or $20 transactions are actually funneling into a criminal component that is actually creating more harm than if we just gave those people their drugs, you know, and, and we kind of started to get there with prop 47 in California, but then that just created a revolving door of people going in and out of jail all of a sudden. And then we now we've got these large swaths of what people call homeless, but I really feel they're just addicted without any support, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like if we're going to fix the problem, we got to stop trying to fix it in a Lego fashion or a block by block fashion. We really have to kind of, I'd really love to see a politician step up and bring solutions to the table, not just protect their reelection possibilities. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it would be life changing here for us in the, in the United States if a politician stood up and implemented harm reduction as potential solutions. We we have somebody in town that's trying to do that, but she's doing it all the wrong way. And oh, no. Well, she's actually just giving out, you know, free needles to everybody. And unfortunately, what happens is those and I'm fine with that, actually. I mean, Santa Cruz is one of the first people that that went on and, and was doing a needle exchange because of the HIV AIDS uh, scenario we had in the late 80s, early 90s, yeah. and through 2000s, and hep A and hep, all the other diseases that come from sharing needles. But when you're just handing them out by the droves, they end up in our beaches, they end up in our parks, they end up... And it's just so funny. It's, I shouldn't say funny. I use that word inappropriately. It's ironic that people want that to stop, but they don't want to help the person stop. You know what I mean? Like if... If those people weren't leaving their needles around, no one could give two seconds of thought to those people. Yeah. Well, is it just needles that she's handing out or yeah. is it, you know, all the equipment? Because usually I feel like a properly functioning needle exchange usually comes with a waste bin, you know, and those waste bins get utilized pretty well in some in some places that we do have sharps containers around. Yeah. But mm -hmm. but she's mainly just give like giving out the needles and we have a needle exchange in Santa Cruz where it's supposed to be a one-to-one, -one, but it doesn't really happen that way. And, and so all of that talk kind of is the black cloud that's over our industry because we end up cannabis and psychedelics, unfortunately get lumped into that category. And so the people that are 
I don't even want to say conservative or liberal because I think both sides have people that object to both of our industries or both of those industries. Um, it, it, it's, it just creates a bad, it just, it's not all apples are bad. And what right. happens is, is we end up getting lumped into that. And then I think that's some of the stuff that ends up stalling, you know, ballot measures from going through because people look at that and go, well, we've completely mismanaged this. How are we going to even possibly try to manage this other thing? Yeah. I mean, I, and I think that comes to a lack of education and education that no one in the United States has ever properly had pretty much because it's been all of the, all of this stuff has been completely illegal, blacked out from the way that, you know, from the education system, we don't know these things. How would we even make, how would we know to make the right decisions around them? And we've kind of always taken the approach. I have an older son as well, who, you know, he went through the dare program and that was a tough one because, you know, it's kind of like putting kids in church too early. Like they don't really get to make their own decisions. They get indoctrinated with, with things and beliefs. Um, it's one of the main reasons why when kids find out about, you know, the holiday people that come around they're they don't, you know, they don't, they're, that's like a shock. They're like, Oh my God, I've been lied to for the last 12 years of my life. And so, same thing happens with drugs. Instead of like, t- instead of telling people just don't do it, don't have sex, don't do drugs, don't do this. Well, what the, what do you think they're going to do the very first chance they get? They're going yeah. to do all right. of it at the same time, you know? Right. And so I think mm-hmm. if we took a better approach, you know, you, you nailed it when you said education, I think, you know, how would you see education happening just like sex ed at sixth grade? Would you say, drug education starts at sixth grade, like starting to help people understand things because a lot of these kids go off and try things on their own without any guidance. True. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a difficult for me to answer this question only because I went to Catholic school from kindergarten till college, basically, which is like a dare program from, you know, the time that you're first going to school to the time you leave school. Um, and it was, it had exactly that impact. I mean, look at me now. I'm talking to you about psychedelics and I'm writing about weed. It's what I do. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's literally what happens. But I think that, you know, making it a not like a not taboo subject and creating conversation around that and responsible use, maybe, you know, simultaneously with sex ed or an adjacent program like that could work. And I think that implementing responsible use and, you know, hammering that from a very young age would tremendously change the way that we utilize them and think about these substances as a society going forward, because ultimately it's, it is how you educate and it's how you, who, who you are educating and we have to educate the youth, you know, that's where change like kind of bubbles and grows. And then, you know, explodes when they're in their twenties and their thirties and, and on for the rest of their life. So, yeah. Did, did I touch a nerve? I didn't mean to disrespect no. your, your Catholic <laughs> upbringing, no, no. but I just think that no, that's no. a good parallel in the sense that, you know, we, we preach these abstinence processes sometimes that actually work in reverse. And I Absolutely. feel like we're so much better, you know, you don't have to lay it all out and, you know, I mean, when they're doing sex ed with kids, they're not taking them to Pornhub to show them how to, you know, (laughs) understand sex. They're introducing it in an educated fashion, you know, and I think we could do the same thing with, with drugs and it doesn't have to be on a shock value or I think so many times in education, even with sex ed a little bit, 
sex ed also sucks. It yeah. does, they don't they don't do a good job. Well, no, they they it's too. it's tilted towards don't do it. Right, exactly. And instead of letting the like just putting the facts in front of a child and letting them come to their own conclusion, you know, they're already not going to do stuff that they're not totally sure about. So you don't have to necessarily push that implication, but then you get the peer pressure, right? And so when you leave that right. open-ended kind of discussion around sex is bad, okay, then then all of a sudden, like, these kids are like, well, what's so bad about it? I'm going to figure it out. And then we end up kind of pushing them in the opposite direction. So if we were going to do something around, you know, drug education, I feel like it, it should be substantial and on an education. You know, we don't teach history like that. We don't teach math like that. You know, right. we, we, we tend to let them have their own critical thinking. And I feel like that, you're right, the youth is... I don't know right now, though, these kids are running around not listening to the COVID warnings, but, you know, it's the youth is our future. And we oftentimes don't invest or entrust enough uh, information to them so that they can make the right decisions. I agree. I agree. Also, it's challenging with this, you know, gener- with these generations of youth because they're stuck on a screen and they're stuck on the, on like an iPad or computer or a tech a technology device, whereas, you know, the generations beforehand had always gone outside and kind of had a connection with the, you know, the world, the outside world, uh, in a way that maybe these generations don't, the newer generations, younger generations don't. However, potentially with, with COVID now that school has stopped, everything has stopped. There's maybe a little bit of a chance, you know, for them to get off of YouTube, to get off of, their screens, their devices, and potentially, I don't know, that, like, again, that also can change the way people learn, that can change the way people grow up, you know? So we'll see. We'll see how that all goes. Well, it's been an amazing conversation with you. I want to give you a lot of appreciation for taking time and sharing, you know, a lot yeah, of your thoughts you. and you know, kind of what you do is, is really important in our space. And so I appreciate the beacon that you are when you, you know, are, you know, inserting your journalistic efforts into, you know, the multiple, uh, industries that you are via, if it's either cannabis or psychedelics, I think it's really important to have a solid voice and it's even better coming from somebody that has had, you know, an entire upbringing around, you know, a religious schooling, which, you know, maybe, fortunately didn't lock you in and, and allowed you to have an open mind to kind of, you know, enter into other areas of your life, but wanted to like give you a chance to go ahead and tell people where they can follow you on Instagram, uh, what websites we should do. And I'm also going to put these in the blog for you. Well, great. Thank you so much. Uh, well, first and foremost, please for all your cannabis and psychedelic news and culture updates, feel free to visit maryjane.com. That's M-E-R-R-Y-J-A-N-E.com. And you can also follow me on social media. And you can find me at, at Mary, M-A-R-Y-Y-Y, Stardust, as in Ziggy Stardust. We'll, we'll have to get on another podcast and find out the inspiration behind that, that handle. <laughs> <laughs> <Sounds good. laughs> Thank you so much and be safe out there. And I look Thank forward you. You to too. seeing you in person when we get out of this quarantine. Yes, me too. And good luck to you and stay safe. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to this edition of cannabis karaoke, another kick-ass podcast about all things cannabis. 
You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and our website, CannabisKaraoke.tv. And if you or someone you know would like to be on the show, please hit the Book Your Interview button on the right. Cannabis Karaoke, grab the mic and tell your story. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.